Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro. Right now, Israel is uh, fighting actively on two fronts, against Hamas in Gaza and against Hezbollah in Lebanon. While military efforts on both fronts are far from being resolved, Israeli leadership must develop a clear and decisive plan for the inevitable status quo shifts that will be coming apparent in the post-war reality. In assessing the motives behind Hamas's attack in October, we have to revisit these very same fundamental military and political principles. Hamas's objective wasn't merely the destruction of Israel or to embarrass Israel and to gain strategic leverage. Hamas sought to emerge from the conflict as Israel's primary adversary, even more than Hezbollah. Aiming for significant post-conflict gains like lifting the blockade, establishing maritime ports and airports, and possibly even securing UN recognition. Instead, of course, the Hamas strategy backfired. The unexpected scale of their success and Israel's unprecedented military and intelligence failures compelled the state, Israel, to radically shift its strategy. Rather than trying to merely maintain the status quo, which is sort of attritional, it's attrition, Israel allows Hamas to strike it every so often, Israel has now set its sights on the complete dismantlement of Hamas's long-standing reign of terror. Now, history is ripe with cases in which military triumphs do not equate to political success. We've seen this in the past. Uh, For instance, the United States made what they called the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War. The the American forces were initially caught off guard, ultimately dealt a significant blow to the North Vietnamese. However, the military triumph did not translate into a diplomatic victory. The military accomplishment was undercut by negative domestic public opinion in the United States and the U.S. government's indecision. So that led to years of diplomatic impasse and, and during this period, the American troops continued to fall in tactical battles, fighting without a coherent, overarching strategy in order to come to a decisive victory. So th- this, this example serves well to remind us, with an absence of clear and decisive diplomatic goals, then military success is an ultimately fruitless endeavor. You must know what you want to do when you achieve victory. Right now, there's a consensus, I believe, 
It's emerging across the political spectrum here in Israel that the key to decisively impact the, the Palestinians lies in inflicting a strong blow to their inherent sense of honor. To honor. Military victories must be converted into palpable psychological setbacks against the Palestinians. The manifestation could be a, a humbling surrender or to the reestablishment of Jewish settlements in the Gaza Strip. The, the specific strategy is still up for debate, but the core principle remains. Without Palestinian acceptance of its unequivocal defeat, a sustainable political resolution that meets Israel's security requirements is unattainable. We have to beat them in such a way that they know they have no hope ever of starting up again with Israel. The question is, do Israeli leaders fully grasp the critical nature of these circumstances? Engaging in negotiations with Hamas during ongoing conflict may be inevitable, but Israel needs to approach these talks with utmost caution. The primary diplomatic objective should be clear, which is, decisively dismantling Hamas in a manner that prints a sense of overwhelming defeat on the Palestinian psyche. Such a strategy is pivotal to achieving the long-stored political milestone of reestablishing a sense of security for the citizens of Israel while hopefully, hopefully cautioning against future attacks. In other words, Israel must beat Hamas decisively. Now, the, 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 our army, the Israeli army, has long discussed being prepared for conflicts fought on dual fronts. However, when the moment of action arrived on October 7th, it turned out that Israel was not prepared. In the past two decades, the guiding principle of the Israeli army has been the belief that definitive victory in, in, in asymmetric warfare, warfare is unattainable. Israel's army felt we could not have a decisive victory. So this concept has shaped their cautionary approach to conflicts with terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. So it's led to short, targeted engagements aimed at primarily at situational improvement rather than outright extermination of the enemy. This strategy influenced the Army's tactical evolution, especially following the Second Lebanon War, most notably in its reduction of traditional armored brigades in favor of, of enhanced precision counterfire systems and bolstering of the elite specialized units. That's what was in the, uh, the mind of the Israeli army until now. A critical takeaway from recent events is the need for a significant expansion of the maneuvering forces as well as complete restock and even their overall increase in munitions 
and missile stockpiles. Following the war's conclusion, Israel's national priorities need to make a substantial shift. It's interesting, I'm not a big expert on these things, and I often get confused by the numbers. But currently, Israel dedicates about 4.5% 4, 5, 4 of its GDP to defense. That's like uh, 80 billion shekel a year. And this figure is significantly higher than the United States, which spends 3.5%. China spends 1.5%. As I said, we pay 4.5%. 4, 4. Uh, of the GDP. The, after this war is over, the Israeli military budget may need to rise to maybe 6% of the GDP, and, and that would be about $120 billion, which is nearly a quarter of the national budget. However, the solution goes beyond just increasing spending. The military will have to streamline its operations and optimize its critical capabilities in order to more effectively meet future challenges. So a change of this scale in national defense spending will undoubtedly have broad economic implications, particularly on government expenditures. It will necessitate the public's acceptance of significant reductions in other areas and will doubtless require steadfast and reliable leadership capable of managing the anticipated backlash. There are three <coughs> excuse me, there are three key truths that we must remember in pursuit of a long-term resolution to the military crisis on Israel's borders. The first is that the northern population of Israel, Jews and Arabs alike, must be able to return to their homes with no imminent threat from missile fire or ground invasion. Right now, literally tens of thousands of people who live on our northern border have moved into temporary housing in other parts of the country. I have met people here in Jerusalem who come from the northern border and are staying here temporarily in Jerusalem. The, the second thing is that under UN Resolution 1701, Hezbollah will have to retreat north of the Litani River in Lebanon and surrender its weapons. The chances of this happening, I think, are really pretty small. Third, if these conditions are not met in the immediate future, Israel will be forced into a major military offensive that will only culminate in the relocation of the border north into Lebanon up to the Litani River. The inevitable move the hostile Lebanese population north of the new border. In other words, if we are attacked from the north and we respond, and respond in the way that we, we should and we must, our northern border will move further north. 
It's increasingly unlikely the UN will act on Resolution 1701. And Israel's leadership is gradually coming to a conclusion that the question is no longer if, but when. There will be a war on our northern border. The question is when and not if. So what I've tried to share with the listeners is, uh, I'm not an expert, but even if you look at the available information, these are the facts on the ground. When we defeat Hamas, which we must, in Gaza, we will have to fight Hezbollah in the north. And um, that's why, for example, when you go on the streets of Jerusalem, you'll see a lot of people, a lot of young men and middle-aged men even, carrying weapons, because when they go home from the army now, I think I mentioned before that I know from my own army service, when you went home, you had to leave your weapons in the army, pick them up again when you went back to serve on your your, uh, military duty. Now people go home with their weapons because they may be called at any minute. That These are the facts on the ground. We are in the middle of one war with Hamas, which this may be followed by another war with Hezbollah. These are the facts of life in Israel, and we have to learn to live with them. Now I want to change the subject to that of the religious Zionists. There's a guy named Uri Zaki, who's the executive committee of chairman of Merits, which is a very left-wing organization. And he wrote the other day, and I quote, In these difficult days of war, it's impossible to ignore the large number of fallen soldiers from the religious Zionist camp. We should salute this community that gives its life for the defense of Israel. The reality of this war prompted Urizaki, to highlight that an inordinate, inordinate percentage of the fallen so far have come through religious Zionist communities. For instance, of the 11 IDF soldiers who fell in Gaza three weeks ago in, in a three-day period, eight came from the religious Zionist camp. And the the of the, of the first 167 fallen, killed, 30 have come from settlements in Judea and Samaria. So 45% of the fallen in this war came from that camp. And just as Israel salutes the Druze because of their sacrifice, six Druze soldiers fell in the beginning of the war, and as, as a result, there was talk of changing the nation's state law, which the Jewish community finds offensive. So there should be acknowledgement of the sacrifice being paid, not only by the religious Zionist community, but those who live in Judea and Samaria. The Some may take issue with this and say they're going through the list of the fallen and dividing them into sectors just perpetuates the divisions in the country. But in this grisly statistics are worth pointing out for two reasons. First is to recognize and try to duplicate elsewhere 
and the values that are being transmitted within a religious Zionist camp, the love of the land, the love of the country, the love of the people, and the love of the Torah, and a willingness to sacrifice for those collective loves. The, the religious Zionist camp is a big tent that includes left-wing members of religious kibbutzim and right-wing residents of settlements like Alon Moreh in Samaria. Indeed, the religious Zionists goes from right to left. Though they may differ on many issues from possible concessions to the Palestinians, for example, most within this camp agree there is religious significance in the reborn state of Israel, and defending state of Israel is both a historic privilege and a religious value. By the way, those in this religious Zionist camp educate their children with these values. Something cannot be seen in the the something that can be seen and the high percentage recruits from religious Zionist schools going into combat units. I include among these, by the way, my own family, all my grandchildren. I have now uh, 12 uh, grandchildren and and in-law grandchildren serving in the army. Uh, Some are doing uh, reserve duty and some are in the regular army. They all got their education, religious Zionist schools. The uh, it's worth mentioning the number of religious Zionists because the the, the religious Zionists have been demonized in the past. As a matter of fact, one of the flagship institutions, the right flank of this community, is called the B'nai David Pre-Army IDF School in in uh, Ellie has been demonized. And the head of of a school, Rabbi Yigal Levenstein, was literally chased out of Tel Tel Aviv a couple of weeks before um, the war began. Protesters shouted to him, go away, fascist. Meanwhile, 15 alumni of his school have fallen in the war. There's, for years, there's been a campaign of defamation and slander against religious Zionism and settlers. It is poisonous, and it needs to be closed and, and needs to be blown up, is what they said against the school in Ellie. The time has come to think of this camp very differently. They are sacrificing for the, company, for the country out of proportion to their size. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Um... South Africa launched a case against Israel at the International Court of Justice in the Hague, alleging that Israel's military operation in Gaza amounts to genocide. Last week, to much of the world's surprise, 
Israel announced that it would defend its military actions in front of a panel of judges in the Great Hall of Justice in a highly sensitive case that will likely drag on for many years and become a subject of international debate after this war is over. In the international arena, South Africa made a bold statement with its filing in the International Court of Justice in The Hague against Israel, claiming that Israel violated its obligations under the Genocide Convention, stating, and I quote, Acts and omissions by Israel are genocidal in character, as they committed with the intent to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as part of the broader Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group. Unquote. Now, furthermore, South Africa asked the court to issue an interim order for Israel to, spend, to suspend its military operations in Gaza. I don't think they have much chance of being successful in that, but that's not the point. In an unprecedented move, Israel announced that it will send representatives to appear before the court to defend Israel's position, and Israel's foreign ministry stated that it rejected, and I quote, Israel rejects with contempt the blood libel by South Africa in its application to the International Court of Justice, unquote. That is how Israel responded. And Israel, of course, held Hamas responsible for the Israeli response in Gaza, stating that Hamas attempted to carry out genocide on October 7th when thousands of terrorists invaded Israel, murdering 1,200 people and taking hundreds of hostages. So obviously, Israel will not back down and leave terror on our doorstep. Hamas's well-documented strategy of embedding itself in Gaza's civil infrastructure and embedding itself among its civilian population has simply left Israel with no choice but to defeat the enemy. The Israeli army must search, clear, and destroy Hamas strongholds, and they are located in schools, mosques, hospitals and homes, and unfortunately, as will happen in such cases, civilians will get caught up in the crossfire of war. That is the way it is. The picture, I think, is clear. Gaza has become a city of terror. The, the whole area, the whole Gaza Strip, has become an area of terror where its citizens, including men, women, and children, are not scenery. They're not just scenery. It's become a, an area that entirely composed of weapons, explosives, bombs, and an industry 
that manufactures terror and death. That's what Gaza is today. The Hamas, under the guise of a civil government, developed a complete terror operation and a complex underworld of terror that brought disaster upon Israelis and it is bringing disaster upon the Gazans themselves. Truth of the matter is that the world must open its eyes and remove this mask of hypocrisy. Those countries and groups who are now criticizing Israel for its conduct in the war in Gaza were silent. They were all silent during the civil war in Syria, in which more than 230,000 civilians were killed. The world was silent in the face of terrible crimes committed in Africa. The world remained silent in the face of tyrannical di dictatorship and the slaughter of civilians in countries around the world, such as Iran. The world is silent in all of these cases. They have completely ignored the actions of Hamas, whose crimes have been well documented and even filmed. There is ample testimony supplied by survivors and about Hamas's widespread use of the civilian, po civilian population and public buildings for the benefit of terror. Every area in Gaza is being used by Hamas either to store weapons, for example. With the press of a button, the International Court can view and see all the proof of the war crimes committed by Hamas and Hamas's use of innocent civilians as human shields. The pictures have come since the our army, the IDF's entry into Gaza. They have taken movies of all these things, all the way that Hamas has used civilian areas to hide their weapons and all, all the things they do hidden under civilian areas. They can't contest this. Pictures are being taken by the Israeli army. These pictures have come through since our entry into Gaza. They can't be contested. We've seen it in photographs, in videos, documents, and the interrogation of Hamas terrorists. Because the Hamas terrorists themselves, who Israel caught, have been telling what's going on in Gaza this whole time. They hide missiles and weapons in mosques, schools, underneath the beds of children even, under couches in private homes. They prepare explosive suicide vests for children, and they place warheads inside toy chests in a Gaza kindergarten. Every second house in Gaza is a weapon storage of lethal explosives. These are the facts. Israel has discovered it. Israel has filmed it. There's no denying what has been going on in Gaza. After the uh, Israeli army <coughs> discovered the uh, 
weapons. The briefing, briefings were made on the subject by the Israeli army spokesperson, and the overwhelming evidence presented to foreign correspondents who took the Israeli army took correspondence to Gaza with all the evidence, and the facts are indisputable. And by the way, they've also been taken to the American Congress. The vast mountain of evidence that illustrates how Hamas turned Gaza into a center of terror, and that's what it is, all this must be placed before the judges in the Hague. I believe that is the reason why Israel has agreed to go to the Hague, because they have all this evidence to show what Hamas is. Entire responsibility for this tragedy, tragedy which is ongoing, rests upon the heads of Hamas and not upon the state of Israel. The the truth of the matter is, uh, despite the anger and the pain caused by the Hamas massacre, the Jewish people are a nation that always prefers to extend its hand for peace and for a shared life rather than living by the sword and by war. So it is hypocritical of South Africa to, to, uh, to bring Israel to an international court because South Africa is the country that institute apartheid, racial separation. It's rather hypocritical of them to lecture Israel on issues of morality. Here in in Israel, by the way, just last week, Israel's Supreme Court's decision to strike down the government's plan to limit the powers of judiciary shows that Israel remain a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. By the way, there are many people who disagree with what uh, the Israeli court did. And one of the reasons for disagreement is the fa- that's a subject unto itself. And one of the reasons is that the court chooses itself. The, the committee that chooses judges of the court is influenced very much by the sitting judges who are already there. So that, that's a story unto itself, not the subject of what I'm talking now. I'm talking about the hypocrisy of the international court bringing Israel, um, or South Africa bringing Israel before the international court. The, um, the uh, By the way, Israel's uh, military legal advisors accompany every decision made by the Israeli military and they provide legal backing to its actions. The, the legal advisors accompany Israel into the war. So the, it allows and enables Israel to fight against terror observing ethics and international law. There are cases, for example, that run record already that uh, the legal advisors to the Israeli army prevented Israel from attacking certain areas, even though there were terrorists there, but because there were also civilians there, 
and the legal authorities in the army said that uh, too many uh, civilians would be killed if they attacked a terrorist. That's the kind of thing that Israel's done. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Force Prosecutor's Office, is part and parcel of all the military operations and the decision-making process. So the commanders in the field and the pilots are doing as much as they can to minimize the damage. But you have to understand that thousands of Hamas terrorists attached themselves to the civilian population and they built all of their terror infrastructure among the civilian population. It was all done on purpose. If the Gazans want a future for their own children, they have no choice but to get rid of the infrastructure of terror if they want to build anew. And since apparently they're not willing to do this, Israel is going to have to do this do this for them. We are we're talking a situation where terror is millimeters away from the Israeli army. When we're speaking of tens of thousands of active terrorists who hide among the population and use the population as human shields. They crossed Israel's border in, uh, on October 7th and decapitated people, murdered, raped. We have no choice but to fight a war which is going to be a complex war and we have to keep fighting the war despite the significant losses, including the civilian population. Destruction of Gaza is a warning sign for those countries who use terror. For Beirut, for Hezbollah, for the Houthis in Yemen, and for everyone who wants or values terror or values death over life. What we are doing in Gaza is a warning to all of them. Israel will go to the, to the court, the International Court of Justice in the Hague, and Israel will reply to the charge of genocide by South Africa. Israel will explain and justify its actions. In the meantime, the judges in the Hague must view the proof of the true genocide and murdered and murders perpetrated by Hamas because the truth is in plain sight. That is the way it is. By the way, it's interesting that, uh, that there are other cases. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, 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 right now, the, the, uh, the IDF continues its offensives from the ground, the air, and the sea, and uh, they found uh, really important discoveries of Hamas terror facilities and equipment that were embedded in civilian infrastructure throughout the Gaza's residential area. And Israel now has proof of all these things. So, um, for example, the, the, our, our army uncovered a tunnel shaft in a Gazan school. 
and a civilian and in civilian homes. Truth, our troops discovered complex tunnel shafts, intelligence data, and weapons and rockets, including long-range rockets discovered inside a inside a family home. In a residential complex, ground troops identified and destroyed a large stockpile of Hamas weapons and ammunition, including dozens of shoulder-fired missiles and grenades. Israel found all these spoilers. The, on the northern border of Gaza, since the onset of the war, the, ID, the IDF eliminated over 130 Hezbollah terrorist cells we're talking now about the northern border. We're not talking about Gaza. In the northern border, the army, we have a problem with the northern border, not with Hamas, but with uh, Hezbollah. And they've discovered terrorist cells. With, uh, the the uh, Hezbollah continues to send rockets, anti-tank missiles, and mortar shells and diesel from the southern Lebanon area because it's attempting to afflict Israel from its ongoing operation in the south against Hamas. The IDF, of course, remains on high alert in the north. And right now, Israel is withdrawing reserve units. It's not lowering of the intensity of Israel's war with Hamas, nor is the redeployment and readjustment of Israel's forces as a result of American pressure. The opposite true. The new phase of the operation is expected to last for many months. Israel is more determined than ever to destroy Hamas. The returning reservists realize the release and duty may be temporary, depending on the security situation on the northern border and the developments on the ground in Gaza. And right now, is quite often, I live in Jerusalem, soldiers go home now, when I... I there was a time, I remember when I myself did reserve duty, you did not come, come home with a weapon. The weapons were returned to the army when you came home, and when you went back into the army for reserve duty, you got your weapon again. Now soldiers are coming home with their weapons because they might be called back at any moment. Anyway, the bottom line is Israel is more than willing to go to the International Court of Justice in the Hague to defend itself because we have all the proof that we need to show that we are right and the enemy is not just wrong. The enemy must be destroyed. Uh, uh, I think this is important what I said and, and we'll see what will happen. Uh, I don't know exactly when they're going to go to the Hague. It's going to be a long, drawn-out procedure, one that willing is, that Israel is willing to take because all the proof is on our side. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. 
back to Jay Shapiro. In this uh, segment of the program, I'm going to make some comments and share some thoughts with the uh, listeners that are not necessarily related to each other, but the things I have in mind, and I thought that the listeners may find them of interest. First of all, from the onset of Israel's creation, the Muslim world, without exception, has sought to exterminate the Zionist entity, and its initial efforts focused on classical armed conflict. That happened back in the time of the War of Independence in 1948 to the Lebanon War. The enemy's armies suffered staggering defeats each time. And uh, even though Israel paid a painful price, from the mid-1980s, the Muslim world shifted to a different strategy, what they called intifada. Here, too, Israel paid a heavy price, but was able to withstand the threat. For years now, calls for another intifada in Judea and Samaria and among Israelis, Arabs, have pretty much fallen on deaf ears. The third wave of terrorism, which is still going on, has introduced a pretty much a new method of resistance. Besides what's happening in Gaza, there is lone wolf attacker, attackers here in Israel, people armed with knives or behind the wheel of a car, seeking to terrorize the civilian population and to kill Jews, thinking they're going to go to heaven. However, a series of measures implemented by Israel's security forces along beside quick and effective action by civilians at the scene of attacks have suppressed the phenomenon significantly. A lot of Israelis carry guns, and uh, quite a few of the terrorist attacks, the terrorist has been killed by a civilian who happened to be in the area where the attack uh, took place. So the, uh, there's all kind of diplomatic and legal and public relations warfare against Israel. Uh, they tried to present Israel as an immoral, apartheid, illegal country to so we shouldn't delude ourselves. The goal of public diplomacy war is the collapse of the Jewish state. International pressure demanding that Israel return to the June 4th, 1967 borders is understood as the first step, not the last step. The president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, has consistently declared that he will never recognize the state of Israel as the state of the Jewish people, and he will never surrender the right of return for Palestinian refugees. So the argument that went on between Israel left and Israel right overlooked the essence of the problem. The issue is not the territories, but the very existence of the state of Israel. 
Now, since what happened in October, the left is not so sure of its position anymore. And uh, that's what will probably bring about a big political change uh, the next time we have an election here in Israel. Um, I want to go on, again, as I said previously, I want to touch upon a bunch of subjects. I think the uh, listeners are aware that I myself am a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. And um, what happened was that uh, the president of Penn, together with the presidents of of MIT and Harvard really made a disgraceful mess of themselves in front of a uh, congressional committee last night, and the president of Penn stepped down, the president of Harvard has stepped down, the president of MIT, who happens to be a Jewish woman, is still holding her position. But what's interesting particularly to me as a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, was that last week a group of around 30 professors from the University of Pennsylvania came to Israel on New Year's Day to support their Israeli colleagues and students. This is the first high-level faculty solidarity mission from an Ivy League university since the massacre. And uh, our president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, welcomed them at his residence. And uh, the group returned. They were here on Tuesday, and I understand they returned on Thursday. The, uh, the, uh, it's interesting. The, one of the leaders of this is a professor of psychology said, academic communities are incredibly small, tight-knit families that span the globe. When the horrific trauma of October 7 struck the Israeli academic community, people awaited words of comfort from their close colleagues and friends. But for many, those words did not come. For that reason, they decided to plan the trip. Incidentally, it's nice. I'm glad that the, they're doing something like that. But it, it, it's it structurally interesting that these professors seem to uh, look upon themselves as being above the people. The um, They say uh, the, the academic communities are small, tight-knit families, and what happened was that the Israeli academic community was struck, and therefore they must get close colleagues and friends to come and share with them their feelings. It struck me funny that the professors feel like that. I'm waiting for a group of uh, hardware store owners or um, pharmacists or um, lawyers or any other group to get together with their colleagues and come and visit Israel because they're a close-knit community. Anyhow, the, uh, the, 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 another thing they said, which, again, it shows a certain attitude. Academic, they said academic, I'm quoting one of the leaders of this group, 
I mean, it's nice they came here, but I don't want the listeners to misunderstand. But the, one of the leaders of the group said, academic knowledge communities transcend wars and political conflict. We want to do what we often engage with our, with our colleagues and learn from each other's experience. That's nice, but it's an awfully snobbish way of putting it. And by the way, despite the anti-Semitism has been rampant on U.S. campuses in recent years, and especially since October 7th, including my alma mater, the University of President, uh, and as I said, the president of that uh, university resigned last month because she evaded a question in a congressional hearing as to whether students who call for the genocide of Jews should be punished. The, the professors who came now said that their mission is not about anti-Semitism. Rather, it is one of solidarity with Israeli professors and students who, along with the rest of the country, have been suffering since the barbaric massacre and hostage-taking almost three months ago. The mission was undertaken by the professors and not by the university. So I think that's very nice, by the way. As I said, I'm waiting for carpenters and hardware owners and pharmacists and candy store owners and uh, shoemakers and just every other professional group to get together and visit Israel. The, the college professors have set the example for other groups to follow. It's been uh, more than a hundred days that uh, there are 132 remaining hostages been in captivity and uh, at the outset no one believed that 14 weeks after October 7th Israeli forces would manage to release only one hostage alive. Some were, three were mistakenly shot dead. It's really been a mess. Over a hundred hostages, most of them women and children, were freed by Hamas under the auspices of the International Red Cross. All of this was within the framework of various exchanges for Palestinian prisoners that were in captivity in Israel. So, um, supposedly Hamas made a gesture of goodwill to foreign governments by releasing these people. By the way, from day one, the families of the hostages organized to pressure the Israeli government to have the issue of the hostages first place among its war goals. They also pressured foreign governments and organizations to have the issue on the agenda of the international community in relation to the war in Gaza. The taking of civilian hostages in the manner that Hamas did, and also individual civilians in Gaza captured them and brought them to the Gaza Strip, is obviously contrary to international law. And uh, in, there was there was several cases, particularly one where one managed to escape captivity, but he was caught by civilians. 
and he was turned back. So uh, the, the 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 there's no such thing as unaffiliated in uh, in in Gaza. Everyone here is affiliated. The complexities of war in Gaza demand a nuanced understanding. Talk they talk about the uninvolved, the unaffiliated. This distinction becomes critical in assessing the impact of military operations. The uh, and discussions about the Israeli Hamas war, especially in international forums, the term uninvolved often emerges to describe civilians who are not actively participating in hostilities. But the word uninvolved implies innocence and non-participation. So it sort of shapes global perceptions of military actions and their justifications. However, the term unaffiliated introduces a much more complex category. It refers to individuals who, who, while not officially members of a terrorist organization like Hamas, demonstrate a willingness to engage in acts of violence or support those who do. The unaffiliated are not passive bystanders by any means. The unaffiliated are active participants in the war, although without formal recognition or affiliation. uh, We saw this on October 7th, when there were several incursions into Israel by thousands of terrorists along the Israel-Gaza border. The first incursion occurred at 6.30 in the morning, involving terrorists affiliated with Hamas who had planned and orchestrated the attacks. However, at 8 o'clock, an hour and a half later, a second group came from Gaza, unaffiliated with Hamas. These were citizens, if you can use the word citizen, people who came along to participate. This indicates that in Gaza there's a significant group not formally affiliated with Hamas, yet they are engaging in violent and extremist attacks. What they do is just like what the terrorists do, despite not being officially linked to any recognized terrorist organization. This challenges the common perception of all Gazans as innocent civilians trapped in the conflict. That that is not the situation. Acknowledging the existence of unaffiliated individuals in Gaza who engage in violent acts is not an indictment of the entire Gazan population. There could well be some people living living in Gaza who are really uninvolved, and they bear the brunt of the war's horrors. It was all brought upon them by Hamas. However, Overlooking or dismissing the role of so-called unaffiliated individuals in perpetuating violence essentially undermines efforts to understand the full spectrum of those who are acting in a complex war. And I think all wars are more or less complex. 
During the Second World War, for example, the Allies bombed German and uh, Japanese cities, and I'm quite sure there were a lot of people in those cities, at least a number of people in those cities, who may have been against the war. But the, the, once a war starts, it's hard to term what is unaffiliated. Now, the moral and operational standards of the Israeli army in dealing with civilians during conflicts are often highlighted in any kind of discussion. The, it is known that our army, the IDF, is known for its effort to minimize civilian casualties and it faces a really formidable challenge in distinguishing between uninvolved civilians and unaffiliated people who pose a threat. Now this distinction is obviously critical for maintaining the moral high ground and upholding international law standards. The, um, as we reflect on the events of October 7th, their implications the people around the world, the global audience, needs to approach reports on Gaza with a critical eye. Media narratives often simplify complex situations and distinction between uninvolved and unaffiliated is lost because war by its nature is brutal and tragic and while some innocent lives are undoubtedly lost, uh, but often as a result of ter terrorist groups like Hamas using civilians as human shields, uh, or, or else by keeping keeping these people from evacuating, which they do, they, they keep them from evacuating. So there will be all kinds of acts of violence against unaffiliated and uninvolved. So it's our responsibility in the final analysis to question and critically assess the narratives and the numbers presented to us because we have to understand the complex realities of the Israel-Hamas war beyond only simplistic labels. Uh, you know, uh, General Sherman said war is hell. And in any war, I think, innocents are going to be killed. But that's what happens in war. So people can't be blaming Israel for conviction. Israel does not go to kill civilians just like that. Israel's only the world was that it remains so. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi again, this is Jay Shapiro. Uh, on this last portion of the program, I want to start off with an item which appears uh, in one of the Israeli newspapers, 
Uh, it wasn't on the front page, but it was, uh, I found it in the Jerusalem Post on page two, which wasn't too bad. But I wanted to um, share this information with the listeners because I found it of interest. And it's not the kind of thing you generally hear about. Um, it goes as follows. A Kurdish-Iranian woman named Roya Hashmati was whipped 74 times after a photo of her was published a few months ago in which she was not seen wearing a hijab in Tehran. Um, uh, it, it turns out that uh, you know a hijab is the, the covering that a Muslim woman wears on her head, covers her, her entire hair. And Ashmani, this woman has been an outspoken critter of the Islamic regime's hijab law. And an account of the flogging shared by the Kurdish Human Rights Organization, she stated upon entering the court where the flogging was to take place, she removed her hijab. Although, although both her lawyer and the employer advised her to put on her headscarf to avoid trouble, she recalled that she uh, came specially for the lashes and I would not yield. The officer carrying out the flogging told her to put in the hijab, but she refused, even if we threatened to whip her severely and added another 14 lashes to her sentence. She said that she maintained her stance and did not wear the hijab. Eventually, two women came in and forcibly placed a scarf on her head, eventually handcuffing her to keep the scarf on. Uh, she, would de she described the room where the sentence was carried out as containing a bed with handcuffs and iron bands welded to both sides, as well as an iron device resembling a large easel, which also had handcuffs and an iron binding in the center. It looked, uh, she said it resembled a fully equipped medieval torture chamber. She wrote that she quietly chanted, as she was being whipped, she chanted, in the name of woman, in the name of life, the clothes of slavery are torn, our black night will be dawn, and all the whips will be axed. She said this as the whipping was carried out. She added that she ensured that her pain was not perceived by those present, and she removed the headscarf as soon as she left the room. The um, the judge, by his way, acknowledged discomfort with the case, but insisted on the case being carried out. He suggested living abroad to her for a different life. I affirmed, this is the judge speaking, I affirmed our commitment to resistance, emphasizing the universality of this country. I urge the law to fulfill its role while we persist in our resistance. Uh, the, uh, the oh, that last thing was said by the woman herself. Uh, I, we persist in our resistance. She was originally arrested and had her phone and laptop confiscated for publishing a piece, a picture of herself without the hijab, according to the Iranian news. And um, the uh, it's interesting the. Uh, the by not wearing a hijab, not wearing her hair covered, she was also charged with propaganda against the regime. Being in the streets without a religious hijab 
harming public modesty, producing vulgar content, and encouraging people to commit corruption. And uh, so the, uh, by the way, the, the, it was noted that the, uh, the, her flogging took place on Mother's Day in Iran. What's Mother's Day in Iran? It marked the birthday of Fatima Zara, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad and the wife of Ali, the first Shia Imam. So that's how they celebrate Mother's Day in uh, in uh, Iran by uh, flogging somebody who didn't keep her hair covered. So uh, this, it, would, it seemed to me that this kind of news should be headlines, so we should know who we're dealing with. But uh, since I found it in the back pages, I wanted the listeners to to uh, know about it because I found it very fascinating. So that that's uh, news that's a little bit. You should pardon the expression, it's a little bit off the beaten path. I want to bring the listeners up to date on what's happening in Israel now. Again, it's a bit of a problem. My program's only on once a week, and the news happens pretty fast here in Israel. But I try to step back, see the big picture, and share my thoughts with the listeners. For the last 15 years, the predominant security doctrine here has been a passive one. In other words, it's based on deterrence. The idea being that Israel could live with ideologies on its border, preaching Israel's destruction, because Israel believed that these organizations would never act on their ideology because knowing full well that if they did, they would un- incur the substantial wrath of the Israeli army. Now, uh, Hamas, uh, on October 7th, proved that this assumption is false, that it was in no way deterred by Israel's overwhelming power. So it has led to a change in Israel's doctrine. If Israel, before October 7th, was willing to live with a situation where the bloodthirsty terrorist organization with significant military capabilities lived within spitting distance of its civilian communities, and Israel paid a horrible price for allowing that to happen, it is no longer, Israel is no longer willing to tolerate this. This is clear in Israel's policy now toward Hezbollah in the north, and Jerusalem's demand that the terrorist organization be moved a safe distance from Israel's border. In other words, we right now we're fighting Hamas in Gaza. That's an Israel-southwest border. But we have Hezbollah, that's Hamas. But we have Hezbollah in the north along the Lebanese border and Syria. So Israel is now demanding, and, and we know that Hezbollah is loaded to the teeth with rockets. I think the 100,000 rockets are estimated. So the, it's clear Israel's power stood toward Hezbollah in the north. And Jerusalem's demand that the terrorist organization be moved a safe distance from Israel's border. Now, this can be accomplished through diplomacy, which of course is preferable, or 
by, uh, if necessary, by military action. And this demand against Hezbollah by Israel is a new one because it reflects a major change in how October 7th and the ensuing three months of war have already changed the country in significant ways. Israel is not the same country that it was before October 7th. There will be a lot of changes. I think there will be a lot of changes politically, but we can't predict at the moment what they might be. By the way, another point of interest, except for the War of Independence and the First Lebanon War, most of Israel's wars have been relatively short. During the 1956 Sinai campaign, it was 100 hours. There were six days of war in 1967, 19 days of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and 34 days of the 2006 Second Lebanese War. So, even though the type of fighting in Gaza is significantly different from what Israel faced in any of its previous wars, because right now we're fighting combat in densely populated urban areas and subterranean tunnels. This didn't exist in any of Israel's previous war. Now, Israel had some experience there because they fought several significant rounds in Gaza since the withdrawal in 2005. But even those were relatively short duration. In 2008, we had what was called Operation Cast Lead. That was 23 days long. And in 2014, they had Operation Protective Shield. That was 49 days long. Now, in this present war, it's been more than three months. Three months during which more than 100 hostages remain in Hamas captivity, during which 360,000 reservists away from family and work, during which Israel is fighting with various degrees of, in of intensity on six fronts right now. They don't get the big headlines. Gaza gets the big headlines. Lebanon gets the big headlines. But Israel is fighting in Judea and Samaria, and Syria, Iraq, and we are also being attacked, attacked by Yemen. There is no clear end in sight. However, this is not a sign of failure. Far from it. Instead, it is a sign of trying to defeat a well-entrenched, ruthless enemy. Our enemy is indifferent to the plight and well-being of their own people. And we are trying to spare the lives of the kidnapped hostages, IDF soldiers, minimize civilian casualties on the other side, and retain international legitimacy. This is a very formidable challenge. And Israel's leaders both political and military, 
has have said from the outset this will not be a lightning war. It will be slow war, it will be a plotting war, and patience is needed. A lot has changed in the three months since the war began. Uh, the, uh, I'll give you an example of some of the changes as I understand it. The, uh, the, in the, since this happened, our government speaks of destroying Hamas and toppling it from power. Now, that objective has changed. Now, there, fewer people are talking about destroying Hamas completely. And the reason is that an ideology cannot be destroyed. You can kill soldiers, you can't kill an ideology that the people have been exposed to for dozens of years. Instead, today there is more talk of radically downgrading and degrading Hamas's capabilities so that after the war, even if Hamas's genocidal ideology still survives, they will not have the capacity to pursue it and to teach it. Israel is pursuing nicely in pursuit of this goal. So far, Israel has killed about 10,000 Hamas terrorists in northern Gaza alone since the fighting began and destroyed tens of thousands of Hamas targets. Now, the other thing that uh, Israel is concerned with is world opinion. Now, in the world media, Israel is not exactly the darling of the world. That being said, few would have imagined that Israel would have been able to continue its war in Gaza at a very high level of intensity for three months without the world stepping in and imposing a ceasefire. The savagery of the Hamas attacks coupled with an understanding, at least at the governmental level, when countries like the U.S. and Germany and Britain, their understanding of what Hamas is after and what it would mean for the entire region if Hamas is not roundly defeated, this has given Israel the time it needs to methodically dismantle Hamas's military capabilities in Gaza. When the war began, there was a lot of talk about how the diplomatic clock was ticking, and Israel just had a limited amount of time to achieve its goals. Three months now down the line, it appears Israel has had more time than many could have imagined. It's also, this war has also changed Israeli politics. To many, the formation of a unity government during wartime is something that should be obvious and a given, but it's not. Considering the political enmity that existed over proposed judicial reform before this war began, and the character of the coalition and the government in the opposition before October 7th, it is really no small feat that a unity government of some sort emerged at all. This government was in a, in a, was in a political war before October 7th. Now, 
the, the, the a lot of people today are in this unity government of people obviously can't stand each other's guts. It's not. It shouldn't be taken for granted that the, all these people who sit together during a cabinet table, even wartime. By the way, the two two uh, political leaders who refuse to join this government, one is Yair Lapid, and the other is Victor Lieberman. So the, the the others have joined together and they've stayed in it, despite very differences of opinion of both how the, how the war is being waged now and what causes should look like in the future. So all this shows that luckily it is not politics as usual here in Israel. It is very likely, more than likely, that the political map will change very radically and dramatically before the next elections, whenever they may be. We still don't know when they're going to be. So that is the situation in Israel. The war has changed everything. The situation now in, po in politics, by the way, in particular, could not have been imagined four months ago. The war has, in a sense, brought out the best in many people. It's, some of them are very surprising. For, certainly, it's brought out the best in Israeli people. 360,000 reservists received emergency call-up notices, showed up for duty. Many many showed up before they were called, and many, many came from outside the country. It's interesting, by the way, the experience of my own uh, granddaughter. My own granddaughter uh, is uh, retired from the army, and she is a she was a major. And she was on vacation in, in France when the war broke out. She contacted the Israeli embassy in Switzerland. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but they arranged for her and a whole bunch of other reservists to get an airplane back to Israel within a day or two. And they came back and they went on, on duty right away. So the... The, the war has brought out the best in the Israelis. Thank God. Let's hope everything will turn out well. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Gay Shapiro, signing off. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel.